passages, Luke 18, 1 to 14. Then Jesus told his disciples a, a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see if she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get their justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even the, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, this is the word of God. In our text, we have um, <clears throat> two very important teachings on prayer uh, by Jesus. And the first one uh, is partly about how we uh, see or view God. Parables have uh, multiple layers of meaning. One of the meanings is um, how we see or view God. And the, the second parable is about how we approach God when we pray. One about how we see God in prayer, and the other about how we see ourselves in prayer. And both of these are foundational to ask and to talk about when we think about uh, what prayer is, which is what I'd like to do with us as a church through this series called House of Prayer. But as we begin this series on prayer, <clears throat> what I'd like for us to do is to slow down. Jesus called his assembled people the House of Prayer in Mark 11. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to sit before God silent, open, and see what happens. I remember hearing about a famous musician going to a church in London for the first time. In this particular church, the music was very, very good, and afterwards, the friend who brought this famous musician to church asked what he thought. And the musician said the music was indeed very, very good, but he expected the service to be more quiet, less chaotic, and more reflective. That's what he was hoping for. I think about that and that story that a friend of mine told me. Because oftentimes, churches like ours, I think, are like ours, think that kind of hype church is what people want. When in reality, most people just want a quiet place to pray. So I like to create this place now, a place where we can be quiet before God. So if you could, put both feet on the ground. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, opening your, your hands to God is a good posture. You don't, you don't have to do that necessarily. If you want to, you can open your hands to God. <clears throat> I just want to create a, a moment where we are 
quiet before God in prayer. Go ahead and close your eyes. The only prayer I'd encourage you to pray right now, especially if you're new to this, is something like, God, I am here. Or here I am, God. Come, Holy Spirit. God, here we are. I thank you for this city and all of its hedonism and ferocious creativity. What we are really looking for here is you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Help us to find you in prayer. In Christ's name. Amen. As we begin this series on prayer, I'd like to begin our time with uh, two confessions, which confession is a, a really good and healthy part of any prayer life. The first confession happened several years ago. I taught a sermon called Prayer as Resistance. It was 2017, after, right after Trump was elected president, Tensions were very high in the city, of course, and in our church particularly because the church at that time was like the flashpoint of what was right or wrong in that, in that period of time, if you remember. If you were in the city, it was pretty tense. And I taught this sermon on prayer as resistance, and it was honestly one of my most probably important teachings on prayer, even as I went back and read it this last week. I'm like, this is, it was such an important teaching on prayer at our church, And after I taught this sermon on prayer as resistance, I got a lot of pushback from our congregation. People saying that we talk about prayer too much or that we pray too much and we don't do enough. We need to balance our praying with doing. And that the sermon gave no hope. Just to pray when we should be doing something in the world is not enough. Now, of course, I sat with that and I brought that before God in all honesty and brought it before a couple other people. And, but the feedback itself left me less than enthusiastic to teach on prayer. The second confession happened last year. I had a very good and close friend of mine who I looked up to who deconstructed his faith. He walked away from fidelity to Jesus. And that journey began when he realized that Jesus said, ask in my name and it will be given to you. And in his thinking, Jesus couldn't have said that because it wasn't true because he tried it over and over again. And if if Jesus didn't say that, what else didn't he say? And it led him down a path where eventually he left the way of Jesus. And that was and continues to be devastating to me. Now I confess that both of these instances have dampened my teaching on prayer at this church, and for both, I ask your forgiveness. This church 
is to be a house of prayer. If it is anything, it is to be a house of prayer. Prayer is what we do. We pray for each other. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our city. We pray for our world. We teach people how to pray. Our church began, Reality San Francisco began by walking the streets of San Francisco, walking the streets and praying, hundreds of people just praying. No evangelism, no talking to people about God, no teaching, no even acts of service, just prayer. And our motto was we have to talk to God about the city before we talk to the city about God. We, got, we have to get God's heart for the city or we're gonna be completely ineffective doing our own programming, our own service, our own like frivolous activity. We need to get God's heart. And not only has our existence been an answer, our church existence been an answer to many of those prayers, but I believe and believe it now more than ever now that we're in this building that our church is really here because of the prayers that people prayed for this city way before we even got here. One of the scriptures that, um, that the Spirit of God led me to when we were starting this church was um, where Jesus said, I'm gonna send you to reap where you have not sown. Others have sown and you're going to reap. And I felt like what was going on there was God was gonna have a step in and reap prayers that have been sown for generations in, our, in the city. And that's exactly what it's taken place. This church and what's gone on in this church is disproportionately um, kind of favored or blessed or however you want to say it uh, beyond the prayers that we prayed sowing into this. This, is, this must be something way bigger. And what I hope for is that we as a church get to a place where we are known for prayer, that all of our life and our existence as a church flows from a life for prayer of connection and communion with God. Now, it's helpful when you start to a conversation about prayer to name some things. It was right that I begin by naming those confessions, but we also have to name other things. We have to name things that keep us from prayer, things that are confusing about prayer. So what I like to do is I like to do something a little bit different, something different than we typically do here on Sunday mornings. I like you in a second to turn to your neighbor and name What's the most confusing thing about prayer to you? Now, here's the thing. Just, just say what comes to your mind. Don't feel like you have to be super spiritual. The confusing thing about prayer to me is that, why does God answer all my prayers? <laughs> None of that. <laughs> Honest questions about prayer. What confuses you about it? Turn to your neighbor. If your neighbor is like someone you like lead, if you're like a leader, like a CG leader and that person, you're like, if I tell them that, what if they like leave the faith? Just, God is bigger than that. Just <laughs> calm down. Now, I'm gonna give you 90 seconds. Here's the thing. Introverts, you're gonna be just super tempted to pull your phone out and go, just take me from this moment. Just deliver me <laughs> from evil. Just stay with it. Just turn to your neighbor, just super quick right now. Now, your skepticism is welcome here. So just turn, your cynicism, not so much, but your skepticism is welcome here. Turn to your neighbor and, say, and just say, what's the most confusing thing about prayer to you? Go ahead and do that now. Okay, so we're not gonna do talk back at this time because this room is way too big for that to be productive in any way, shape, or form. But I wasn't in your conversation. I imagine what might have come up is something like this. Does God hear when I pray? How does prayer even work? 
Can prayer change God's mind, or is prayer just about changing me? Does God always answer when I pray? How am I supposed to pray? And why doesn't God answer my prayer? Now these questions and probably dozens of others that you talked about with your neighbor reveal the problem of prayer. Today is September 11th. As you're well aware, September 11, 2001, will be remembered as a day that international terrorism successfully left its mark on the American landscape. Almost 3,000 men, women, and children from 80 different nations lay entombed in the six stories of the smoking rubble that was once the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. As the dust settled and the rescue efforts progressed and total strangers held hands to cry out to God, stories began to circulate. One woman shared a story of how an unexpected delay had caused her to miss the train she normally rode into the city, claiming that it was a sovereign act of God's mercy. She was immensely grateful to have been spared by, quote, divine providence. Another person, a father who was originally scheduled to have the day off, wanted to make a quick trip to the office in order to tie up some loose ends before returning home to spend the rest of the day with his family catching an early morning train that delivered him to the office at just the wrong moment he was caught in an elevator when the first plane tore through tower number one. His grieving widow now asks friends who want to pray with her, why? Why did God let him get on the train that day, that day of all days? And how could I ever pray again? See, right in the center of all of our aches and problems with God is the topic of prayer. As the theologian David Crump says, nothing brings a feeble human being face-to-face with spiritual conundrums as quickly as prayer. For many, balancing the prospect of a divine response to to our cries for help against the disappointment of of heavenly silence in the face of our suffering tips the religious scales in favor of skepticism, atheism, and renunciation. As a pastor, I have joined with many people as, as they have prayed. I have seen God answer amazing prayers from everything from healing to a job. And I have prayed with others as they have buried children and others as they have lost marriages, all after months and months of praying. And I, I honestly don't know why. I don't know why some are answered, why some prayers are answered and others are not. And I'm sure there are people out there that think they know. But the longer I've been alive and the more I've prayed, the less prone I am to give quick and sure answers. Now, I'm not saying there are no answers. I'm just saying that prayer, it seems from the practice of it, is not automatic. You don't put a coin in the slot of heaven and out pops what you ask for. See, from Scripture, we learn that One of these reasons is God has his own purposes. When we pray, God has his own purposes. And some of these purposes are revealed in scripture, but many, most of the things we pray for are not revealed. Which leaves us to figure out what to do with our own unresolved disappointments with God. We do one of three things, maybe one of four things when our prayers are not answered. We either question if God really does care about us. God, do you really care? Like, this is the thing I... I, I ache for, and it's a good thing. Do you even care about me? 
Or secondly, we doubt the value of prayer altogether. Does this thing even work? Why even pray? Nothing happens. Or third, we silently accuse ourselves of being unfaithful failures, lacking either stamina or faith or both. We leap and heap shame on us, on ourselves. Like, it must be me. I don't have enough faith. Or we just weave all three, three things together in some fragile spirituality. <clears throat> now, there are some people who go to the extreme side of prayer and say that prayer was never intended to influence heaven or to move God to action. That, no, prayer was never for that. Prayer was never for us to move the hand of God. Prayer is only for our sake. It's God's tool for shaping our will to his will, and that is it. Now, prayer is for sure part of that. But to lean entirely in this direction would seem to be a version of Christian fatalism and ignore so much of what Jesus and the New Testament authors teach about prayer, especially Jesus in this parable, to keep on praying, the persistence, the pray with importunity, keep on praying like this widow. That's not what, how Jesus talked about prayer. Now, of course, this is just the theodicy side of prayer or the problem of prayer. The theodicy side, they're like suffering. And what does God do? If God is all-knowing and all-powerful and sovereign, then why, why, why do we have so much suffering in the world? That's theodicy. There's a theodicy side of prayer, but not only that, there's also our side, the very human side of prayer that makes prayer confusing. See, for many of us, prayer means nothing more than talking with God, communication with God. But that typically turns into a one-sided conversation, Henry Nouwen says that this idea of prayer being one-sided creates great frustrations in prayer. He says, because if I'm in conversation with someone and I present a problem, I expect a solution. If I formulate a question, I expect an answer. If I ask for guidance, I expect a response. And more times than not, in prayer, none of these things happen. And soon I begin to suspect that my dialogue with God is in fact a monologue. Then I start to ask myself, who am I even talking to? Am I talking to God or am I just talking to myself? And this is what prayer feels like. For a lot of times, for a lot of us, myself included, prayer just feels like me talking to me. Which is why if we were all being completely transparent, most of us have a really hard time praying alone. Like, I get this a lot from people when I sit with them and ask them, how, how is your prayer life? What's going on? And you're like, it's just so hard to pray alone. We show up to a prayer meeting, we can get involved in that. We show up to church and we have second set and we're like, oh yeah, there's prayer happening, this is great. But when we're alone with God, it feels confusing. Who am I talking to? How do I do this thing? And I'll be completely honest, I do the same thing. I'll sit with God, like, how do I, do I just do the Lord's Prayer? What do I do today? I don't know. Like, that sort of thing happens with me. Prayer's hard especially when we're trying to fix our mind on God, that takes so much energy to do. And a lot of us just give up two days into like committing to praying. Now, this doesn't mean that prayer isn't important to us. Author Philip Yancey in his book on prayer conducts his own survey when he was doing research for his book. He would ask and poll people about prayer. He would ask if prayer is important to them. And everyone would say, of course, absolutely yes, prayer is important. If I pulled this room, is prayer important to you? Yes, yes, prayer is important. But as Yancey dug deeper, asking how often people pray, how long do people pray when they do pray, and if they find prayer satisfying, 
many people found prayer more of a burden than a pleasure. They regarded prayer as important, even paramount, and felt guilty about their failure in it. Which actually brings in shame. A lot of us have a lot of shame when it comes to prayer. Like how much do you pray? How many minutes do you pray a day? How connected, how, how like effective do you feel your prayers are? Does God answer your prayers? Does God hear you? Do you feel connected with God? And there's shame that begins to happen. Like, no, no, that doesn't happen. Like Sundays, that's it, maybe. Like th- we, we feel guilty. We feel failure in our own prayer life. Again, if we're being completely honest, this is the thing about prayer. Prayer ranks very high in theoretical importance, but very low in actual satisfaction. This is where we are. This is where we're at. We talk about prayer. I can get up here and like rah, 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 the church and you'll feel good about this for like 10 minutes and then you'll get home and you're like, I'm gonna go listen to that sermon again. That was easier than trying to pray. Well, what book do we read on prayer? We don't wanna pray. We'd much rather listen to a sermon on prayer. We'd much rather read a book on prayer. But when we ourselves pray, it's really, really hard. Those are problems. And yet the biggest problem, the biggest problem of prayer is that we can't get away from it. Even though prayer is wrought with theological binds, even though prayer is practically frustrating and confusing, prayer remains our deepest longing. This is what we want most in our, of a, uh, out of our spiritual life. This is what I would imagine every single person in here who wants to follow Jesus wants. I would imagine every single person in here who, has, who wants nothing to do with Jesus still wants this. Sometimes this longing comes out when we have exhausted all other resources and we're only left to pray. I remember my mom calling when she couldn't sleep because the chemo was working through her body to such a place where the hydration therapy and all the other sleeping pills, nothing else worked, and she would call me in complete desperation, and she would just simply say, pray for me, mijo, pray. And I would pray. And she said that was the only thing that worked, was just like hearing someone pray for her. When we've exhausted everything else, sometimes we finally do turn, not that my mom, but we finally do, and when everything's exhausted, I wanna pray, that's all I want, I want nothing else, I want you to pray. It's our deepest longing. It's the thing at the bottom that we, all of us eventually get to. But sometimes this longing hits us when we're around someone who is calm and centered. When we're at church or some other holy place and we tell ourselves deep in the back of our mind that one day we'll give ourselves to prayer. One day I'll learn how to pray, like really pray. One day I'll learn how to pray like so-and-so prays. One day I'll learn how to pray where I can walk around with the confidence that God is with me that I'm in constant communion with God, one day I'll give prayer a chance. See, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus only once to teach them something. They seen Jesus do a lot of things. They only asked him to teach them something one time, and it was something that they already knew how to do. They said, teach us to pray. The thing is, these were, these were Israelites. They prayed three times a day. They were praying three times a day ever since they were children. They knew how to pray. They did it every day. And yet, they saw something in Jesus, in Luke 11, they saw something in Jesus where they said, after Jesus was praying in a certain place, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I've often contemplated, what was their attraction to Jesus' prayer life? Some say it may have been his power over demons or his power to do miracles, and maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. But I think and believe that what impressed them 
and what they wanted for their own lives was depth and connectedness of Jesus' soul to God. That's what they wanted. See, if you read the, it's, this is a very, very important note. If you're taking notes, write this down. The synoptic gospel, synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Synoptic means that they all tell the same story, but from like different, different angles, right? Synoptic. John is like this crazy mystic thing that you should only read later. But like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like the synoptic gospels, right? So if you just read the synoptic gospels, if you don't read John, though it's an amazing book, but it's crazy. And the rest of the New Testament, you'll get some of this theology, but you won't get in the Synoptic Gospels, and it's this. The Synoptic Gospels portray Jesus as, as explicitly fully human. They don't portray Jesus as the divine man or the, or the God man. He's fully human in the Synoptic Gospels. Now, you can find it in there because you can read theology back from the New Testament back into the Synoptic Gospels, but itself, if you only had that, you would not find that. Not that it's not there, not that it's not part of our theological convictions, but the point is that what they were portraying Jesus as was a human who lived in perfect union, prayer, connection, and dependence with God through prayer. He was the new Moses, the perfect Moses, who comes to live in connection with God and tell people what God is like and live into the kingdom of God. This is how they portrayed Jesus. And all of Jesus' life flowed from this connected prayer life. And the implications are, you and I can live this life too with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now later on in John and in Paul's writings, we get that Jesus was actually God-man. That was part of the way that he was able to atone for our sins. But the reason why the Synoptic Gospels portray him as man Fully man was so that he would portray to us that he lived in connection with God and it's possible for us too if we live inside the kingdom of God through Jesus. Now that's a little bit too much theology for this morning, but let's move on. So yes, they wanted Jesus' power, but not his power to do crazy miracles as much as Jesus' power to walk into a room and disarm the entire room by his presence. They wanted Jesus' power to be big-hearted, to love beyond his own tribe, to love poor and rich alike, to live inside of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and fidelity. Even though the world swirled in chaotic unpredictability all around him, he was able to live centered in the Father. They realized that that this power came from connection to a deep source through prayer through constantly lifting to God what was, on God what was on his mind, what was on his heart. They saw it, and they wanted that connection for themselves. See, what I think we all long for, whether you are a Christ follower or not in here, and whether we know we long for it or not, is we long for deep connection with God. We desire a mellowness of heart and contentment of soul that comes from that which only God himself can give us. And I think every human used to know this. It's written in all the myths. It's written in all the philosophy. Philosophers would speak of it as a desire of the part to return to the whole. Mystics would speak of it as a spark of the divine within us. The ancient Greeks spoke of it as something they called nostos, homesickness, feeling a, a feeling of never being at home even though you are home. Vikings would call it wanderlust, the insatiable need to push further and further into the horizon. Shakespeare talked of it, of it as immortal longings. Augustine prayed to God, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And poet E.E. E. Cummings said, for every mile the feet go, 
the heart goes nine. These are all the feelings in all of us. We long and then we desire and we want rest and peace and contentment. But what we've done is we've trivialized this longing and we've gave it concrete names beyond the mystical longing for the divine. We have called it a longing for good sex and good success or a meaningful job or a life of impact or a big house or whatever comfort. And what we really, really long for is life with God. So I believe this question to the disciples ask, Lord, teach us to pray, is really a question about the meaning of life. They're asking Jesus, teach us how to find connection with the Father and help us to find what we really, really long for. So how do we do that? And where do we begin? How in the world do we find connection with God and where do we begin to find connection with God? I think these two parables in Luke 18 that we read at the beginning can help us begin this journey. The two main barriers to prayer initially are how we see God and how we see ourselves. These things stop us when we pray. We get into prayer and we think that God is like judging us. We're like, God hates us. Oh, he's mad at us. Oh, I don't want to. No one, they, they, people have said that the, the, the biggest problem with prayer is God. Because when we envision him, they see him, people see him angry and disapproving and constantly disappointed in us. But Jesus tells this parable of the widow and the, and the judge, the unjust judge, of an ex, as an exaggerated scenario highlighting the dissimilarity to the disciples' relationship with God. Jesus is saying, God is nothing like this judge. We think God is like this judge. Like, he doesn't care about us. He's like, fine, I'll grant your request just because you bug me. <laughs> Parents know what it's like to be worn down by their children. Like, fine, have the snack ruin your dinner. I don't care. (laughs) But God is not like this at all. God is not worn down. He, so Jesus calls him, not in this parable, but a different parable, a loving father. Actually, it's pretty revolutionary. He tells this parable of, well, you know, it's the prodigal son. It's actually about prodigal God because prodigal means like, like wasteful. And Jesus is saying, the father is like almost like wasteful with his love like so extravagant with his love. There's a parable about a son who goes away and spends his father's wealth and gets in them all kinds of stuff and, and runs so far away from his father that one day he wakes up and comes to his senses a bit. And when he comes to his senses, he's like, I, I, I think I'm gonna go back home. But if I do, I, I know that I'm gonna have to grovel. I have to face my father. He's gonna be so disappointed with me. All of these things and I just might just have to be like a, a servant or a slave in his household. You know what? I'm totally cool with that. Because this life, I'm so over this life. So he goes back, dragging his feet to the father. And when the father sees him coming over the horizon, he runs after him. He tackles him. He kisses him. He puts a robe on his filthy body. He puts a ring on his finger, meaning covenantal love that is a kind of love that is unconditional. My love is unconditional. I will love you no matter what, which is what you say when you, when you exchange rings on your wedding vow. You should be saying, I love you no matter what. They put a ring on the finger like you're mine, and I will love you no matter what. And Jesus says that father with his extravagant, almost wasteful love, he gave away his inheritance and he blows it and he says, come back into my house. Well, that's wasteful. Jesus said, the fa- that is the picture of the father. 
And so when Jesus says, when they say, teach us to pray, Jesus says, I'll teach you how to pray. Start like this. Our Father in heaven. That was revolutionary. Speak to God as a father. And so when we pray, we don't see a judge standing over us angry like, where have you been? I can't believe you finally praying after everything I've given you. That's not, that's not what, what we get. We, we get a loving father that says, I'm so glad you're home. But there's the other barrier, not only how God sees us, but how we see ourselves, which is the second parable. When we begin to pray, we don't think we're worthy. We don't think we've done enough. We don't think we're, our spiritual resume is strong enough and our wrongdoings are, 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 are like stacked way too high for us to even approach God. And so typically when I ask people about what keeps them from prayer, it's usually something like, I'll start praying when I get my life together. When I get my life together, I start going to church a little bit more and I start reading the Bible a little bit more and when I'm, I'm actually more ready spiritually, then I'll start praying. That's the feeling, a lot of people. It's, it's not just how you view God, but it's how you view yourself. But when we read this parable, when you, get, when you actually do get your life together, when you start doing spiritual activity, when you start to get like, oh my gosh, I'm doing some spiritual stuff, I'm crushing it right now. Five days in a row of reading my Bible, killing it. When you get to that point, the propensity is to show up to God with your resume, with your spiritual heroics, and when you do that, prayer breaks down because we think God owes us. God owes us for our spirituality. Do you know how long, Lord, I've been a virgin in San Francisco? You owe me something big. <laughs> like very, 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 you owe me, God. We think that. People show up with like, God, you know how much I've served you in the children's ministry? You know how much I've served you? You know how much I've prayed? You know how much money I give to the church every week or how much money I give to, you know what I do? God, you owe me. And we show up like this Pharisee, like, oh God, I give so much money. I do so much stuff. No wonder you love me. <laughs> and and what, ha what happens is that prayer doesn't work that way. Actually, that, that actually what gets, gets prayer all messed up. Actually, it's the first person who thinks they're not, they shouldn't approach God because God's doing, like, what am I gonna give to God? Like, that's kind of the attitude. Prayer works best from the place of humility. Actually, all relationships work best from the place of humility. So this shouldn't surprise us. And so tax collector prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Philip Yancey writes, in the presence of the great physician, my most appropriate contribution may be my wounds. So the best way to begin praying is by bringing your real self before the real God bringing your real self before the real God. Now, I want to close by speaking about, and we'll do this more as we go. We have a lot more to cover. But I want to close by speaking to the mystery of prayer. Prayer in the, um, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 8, same thing, prayer is um, pictured as incense, physical incense in the temple, um, our Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican friends still do this. It's something I've actually been wanting to bring into this uh, sanctuary eventually. They, you, they don't have these like cute little Etsy incense sticks like I have up here. You can't even see it if you're in the back. Like, it, there's something there. Um, 
They used big censers and they would fill with incense and they would wave the incense as the church started. It was a picture of like prayers going up as we begin. Prayer, our prayers are going up to God. And as they go up to God, this aroma that it makes is just so pleasing to God when the church comes together and prays. It's a beautiful picture. But not just that. When you light an incense, you won't get that much on this one, but typically when you light a big censer, you get a lot of smoke. And the thing with smoke, it's interesting. I love the fact that smoke is a part of um, prayer because um, what smoke does is smoke impairs your vision. Where you can't see that well when there's smoke in your eyes. It actually burns your eyes where you can't really see. You're like, you're trying to see and, you're, and it's messing up your, all your senses. It's like getting in your nose, getting in your eyes. You're like, I can't really see. I can't really smell anything else. I'm disoriented, making you use your other senses, like the eyes of faith. And this is what prayer feels like. If prayer feels like to you something that's like burning your eyes, cloudy vision, like I can't see, it's like I pray and it's just, I, I want clarity, I can't get clarity. And it's like, that's what prayer feels like. It feels like smoke that fills your nostrils and burns your eyes and gets all over the place and allows you and it even draws you into the mystery of faith. It draws you in the mystery of I'm gonna use the eye of faith and not my natural eyes, not my natural senses, but something beyond that. This is why Jesus ends his parable by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And our prayer is, let it be so, Lord. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, as we begin this journey of prayer, my, my hope and desire plainly is that you would teach us to pray. We want encounter with you, Lord. We wanna encounter you right now as we move forward. We come forward and we receive prayer and we do pray and we respond to you. We want encounter, but Lord, above that or beyond that, we want formation. We want deep formation to happen in our souls, to happen to us to where months from now, years from now, you will still find us praying that we will pray and not lose heart. Let it be so. In Jesus' name.